the panel on RNZ National. Lovely to have your company. Anjum Raman and Steve McCabe with me today. Uh, clearly wrong about uh, mending clothes. Many responses here. You do do it. Uh, as an arborist, my chainsaw protection trousers cost $550 a pair. I do a few dozen repairs on each before they're finally retired. And Claudette says, yes, I'm in my clothes and I love it. It's actually a very satisfying thing to do. Another one here, mending, one of my favourite things on the planet. Do it 99% with the sewing machine, even socks. Buy a few gumboot pairs, always have one to cut up for patches. Thank you for that. Well, let's kick off with this. It's really been the story this week, and we will keep going back to it too. That is the cost of living. Data from Stats NZ shows just how much the cost of living has ballooned since 2019, when most New Zealanders were still untouched by the economic effects of COVID-19. A family of four now needs to wring hundreds of dollars more out of the weekly budget as living costs soar, Stats NZ reported. So uh, how are the costs hitting you? Let us know. Uh, get in touch, uh, the 2101 by text. But with us now is Auckland Action Against Poverty Coordinator, Brooke Powell Stanley. Brooke, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. Thank you for having us on the show. Pleasure. What are you seeing with families uh, and whānau that you're working with, Brooke? Uh, we're seeing people and families, I mean, they've always kind of struggled to make ends meet um, people living on benefits and uh, with the current cost of living crisis, I mean, it's just worsening in the community. Um, people are having to start to decide, um, you know, if they send their kids to school, um, what bills to pay, which are more a priority, um, having to get rid of things like sell things. Um, not having, not being able to attend um, family events, even like school, looking for work jobs, looking for housing um, because petrol's too high. Um, yeah, it's just kind of poverty is a pandemic in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Almost talking survival mode here, Brooke. I think people who have lived on the front lines and impacts of poverty have always. Um, lived in survival mode. It's extremely stressful um, for people and families and children that are involved. Um, and I think we don't often talk about these things. Uh, I think, yeah, the government can do a lot more as well to help alleviate a lot of these stresses, um, given not only are we living through a cost of living crisis, um, people are also experiencing a housing crisis and having to deal with COVID on top of that. Yeah. So um, there's a lot going on, yeah. I, I, I'm looking at that. I mean, just looking at just breaking down sort of just one of the costs. And actually, we're going to go back to um, uh, fruit and vegetables later on in the second half of the program. But just mm. looking at the renting, just for example, I mean, seeing the stats here, the same family of four is likely to pay $773 a week, used to pay for the same rental $555. That's a $218 a week increase just since 2019. I know, and I mean, I think there are some essential um, human rights here that should be provided for by the government. Um, we need a massive investment in public housing. Um, a Ministry of Greenworks would be an amazing start. Um, more investment into papakainga and iwi-led solutions. Um, and I mean, just more public housing. Uh, the government seems to think that emergency and transitional housing is kind of um, a short term was meant to be a short term um, 
solution to housing, but it's actually ended up being people are living in these spaces as like these are homes now. Um, they could alleviate a lot of distresses involved with people and whanau in these spaces by giving them livable incomes. Well, let's bring in our panel and broker, Andrew Raman. Let's bring you on your thoughts on this. Kia Brooke. Um, lovely to hear from you. Thank you. Yeah, you Thank too. You. Um, it's just amazing. Um, yeah, I, I love what you said about a human rights approach. And, you know, we so we don't talk about really fundamentally changing society. And I wonder, you know, I feel kind of like the political system doesn't allow it. But for me, like, just imagine if we restructured society so that everyone had a home, basic food, clean water, health and education. Like, everyone had that. And then if you wanted more, the extras, um, your smartphones and your big TVs and your whatever else, you know, your nice to haves, then those you would go out and work for. But that we just just restructure everything so that basics is that you need to survive are just available for everyone um and and that is a cultural shift it's a change in the way of thinking moving away from who deserves you know as if people don't deserve food and they don't deserve homes because we think they're lazy or whatever we think about them everyone deserves those things Kia ora, yeah i i agree i agree with what you're saying and i think um, Aotearoa, we really need to think about preparing for climate change. Um, and I mean, how incredible will it be if we were um, a nation that was um, te tiriti based, you know, that we honoured te, te tiriti, that we honoured he whakaputanga, that we worked towards um, a system that's been set out and dreamed um, up in Matike Mai. Oh, I totally support that. We're doing book club on Matike Mai at the moment and I just... Yeah, I reckon that kind of constitutional reform, that basic changing of the structures of how we make decisions, is really the only way that we're going to have the shift that we really need at the moment. All right, Steve. Yeah, and Anjan's right. We need a whole tapestry of different uh, approaches. I mean, let's let's say first of all, if if cost of living goes up, wages need to go up as well. So, for example, the secondary teachers at the moment are going to be re uh, bargaining for their new collective agreement. I'd love to see a, them get a pay settlement that reflects the the huge increase in in living expenses. I doubt they'll get it, but they really, really should. Housing's a huge problem. I suggested on the panel a year or so ago that the government take over um, running rental housing. I was laughed out of the studio, but I, I think it's worth revisiting that because we've got people milking massive sums out of, out of the housing market to the detriment of the most vulnerable members of our society. There's so much that needs to be fixed, so much. It's hard to know where to start. Yeah. Brooke, just um, on what the government has announced uh, just uh, you know, in the last few days, the government, uh, what, cutting 25 cents a litre of fuel for three months, um, things like half-priced public transport. For those that you work alongside and with and such like at the uh, Auckland uh, Action Against Poverty, will that make a dent? Will it help at all or not? No, that's that's nothing, Wallace. <laughs> that's not going to help much at all for people that are struggling already with like rising cost and rent, um, petrol, um, food, like savings of what did they say between eleven and seventeen dollars a week? Mm. Like that's literally nothing for people that are struggling with like day to day costs of having to survive. I mean, they could have 
They could have done heaps of things. They could have given people livable incomes, like given money straight to people. Um, they could have taken, like, removed all of the um, taxes on petrol. They could have put in a wider strategy around making public transport free for all and also, like, ensuring that it's accessible to our disabled whānau and also it's good quality in rural areas. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of things they could have done and we've seen them act really swiftly during the COVID pandemic and even now in response to Russia and the Ukraine situation. Um, but, yeah, we time and time again, we're always kind of, they, they never do enough. Brooke, lovely to have you on the program. Uh, hope you can come back again. But for now, kia ora, thanks for your time. Cool, thank uh, you. That is Brooke Paul Stanley uh, from uh, Auckland Action Against Poverty Coordinator. Uh, someone says here, I work with the board. Can't even survive. It makes living under the bridge quite sensible. It is uh, 18 past four. If you're on the panel, RNZ National, Andrew Rahman and Steve McCabe with me this Friday afternoon. Well, prepare yourself to be on the hunt for a new family doctor. A report released by the Royal New Zealand College of GPs revealed that half of New Zealand's family GPs will be retiring in the next uh, 13 years. So why aren't there enough to go around with us? We're joined by uh, the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners Medical Director and also a person who has a, a practice uh, himself in Porterua, Dr. Brian Betty. Dr. Betty, kia Kira uh, was. I was just amazed at this, actually. Um, half of New Zealand doctors to retire in 13 years. And I'm here, here I am just thinking of my own uh, very, very good local GP, a GP that, you know, I've got a few health issues. He knows me inside out. And to think that he wouldn't be my GP in a few years sends chills down my spine. Look, I think that's that's the reaction of a lot of people to this. And actually, it's it's half 50% are intending to retire by 2030, which is just eight years away. So this oh. is why this is this is this is quite an issue. We've known this has been building for a while. It's really started to come through to the fore since we've started to do this research and look at what was going on. Um, and you're right, people have continuity, they have connection, they have trust in their GP, their family doctor to, to, to advocate for them, to, to, to give them the best advice and best treatments going forward, an incredibly important part of frontline medicine in this country. And yeah, we have a looming, looming problem here. But why? Why? Why is it hard to attract younger GPs? Is the job more demanding today than it once was 20 years ago? What is there a single reason, Brian, or is it more socio-societal? Uh, Look, there's a combination of reasons, and there's two, two major clusters of thing, reasons. Um, so you've tapped into something here. The job is a tough job. There's lots of expectations on GPs and what they do. Um, a lot of patient presentations are a lot more complex than they used to be. We work in this 15-minute consult model, which the system forces on, on the sector. And a lot of GPs are having to do a lot of off-patient administrative work that DHBs and the ministry are now demanding. So they're saying, look, um, we don't get funded for that. It's, it's a lot of work. A lot of GPs are working 70, 60 to 70 hours a week. And they're saying, look, is it worth keeping doing this? And that's part of what's coming back. The other thing we're seeing is only about less than 20% of those who are graduating from medical school are saying they'd take general practice as a, 
as a profession versus going into a hospital and being a cardiologist or a surgeon. Um, so that, that is another issue. And one of the main reasons that's occurring is um, medical um, students get very, very little exposure to general practice in their undergraduate years Goodness. or in their first years, couple of hours. So they don't see general practice. They only have, a, I suppose, a hospital-centric view of how medicine is practised. Pick up a couple, on a couple of those things, but let's bring our panellist, Andrew. Oh, I have a lot to say about this. Yeah, go for <laughs> um, it. <laughs> look, we're in an environment, first of all, where globally we've lost so many health workers to COVID, not here in Aotearoa, um, thank goodness, but we're in a space globally where in many countries around the world we've lost a lot of people. Secondly, there's too many restrictions on entry. Um, we need to have better support to get people from overseas who want to come here and, and open a practice it's so hard for them first to, to get through the qualifications process. There seems to be a lot of restrictions um, by the profession around how many GP clinics and where you can, um, and I've only heard this anecdotally, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but, but there are restrictions there. Um, University of Waikato wanted to open a medical school. That would have opened up so many new places. No, nope, was not supported. In fact, was actively um, worked against um, by other universities, I understand. Again, happy to be corrected. Um, the other thing is the abuse of health staff at vaccination centres, at emergency department, and the number of times we're hearing that health staff of colour facing extreme racism with patients refusing to be served by a person of colour. And um, anecdotally, again, heard someone who's going to just stop being a GP because he can't handle the abuse that he's getting from patients. Um, so we need to deal with this close shop, the restrictions on numbers, um, the restrictions on where people can practice. We need more diversity at the top levels of the medical profession because I don't believe that's there yet. Um, yeah. What would you say? Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's quite a few barriers there, uh, Brian. Look, I mean, there's a lot of issues you've touched into there, and I, I suppose we could talk for the next week about these. <laughs> um, but one of the things is the overseas trained graduates that you, you mentioned, which I think is very pertinent. So the New Zealand medical workforce is about 40% overseas trained. We're incredibly reliant on overseas doctors to come into the country. And I suppose one of the things that's happened over the last two years is the borders have been closed. So that stream of doctors from offshore that we'd normally be very reliant on are suddenly not there. And I think that's one of the reasons this has really, really come to the fore, the underlying problem we've got. However, one of the things I would say, and one of the things that's really, really important here, we shouldn't be reliant on overseas trained doctors. We should be training enough GPs within the country as it stands. And that's where the fundamental, I think, issue lies. And there are restrictions to entry into medical school, and there does have to be standards, which is fine. But certainly that is very constrained by the amount of funding that the government and the ministry puts into those, um, those places at medical school. And we need to increase the, straight, uh, the, 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 the supply of, of doctors coming through the medical training, and we need to make general practice attractive to them as a very, very good profession um, to go forward with. You've also tapped into some of the other stresses that have emerged around COVID with abuse and what's actually going on. And that's actually been really, really distressing over the last 12 months. Some of the instances I've had to deal with or I've heard have actually been really, really distressing for frontline medical staff and nurses and receptionists 
who have really copped a lot of, I suppose, the frustration and anxiety of some some patients to the situation and what's actually happening. Right. Uh, someone says here, I'm a psychiatrist, uh, partner as a physician. We did a, we did a few months ago in GP as a junior doctor. We both realised being a good GP is bloody hard. Uh, Steve. Well, I was absolutely blown away by that 40% figure that you just mentioned, Brian. Um, it's, it sounds like New Zealand is basically importing its doctors. I mean, uh, GP has been on the, uh, what is it called, the, the long-term skill shortage list for immigration in New Zealand for years. So this isn't really an entirely new problem. And, mm. you know, when Anjum's saying that, that, you know, Waikato were trying to open a medical school and they were shut down, it sounds like, from what I've heard from, from students I've known who tried to get into um, medical programs, it's ferociously competitive. There's a lot of able students. So it's not a question simply of, of constraining um, or the admissions to make sure you get the very best. There's an awful lot of very, very good applicants who simply can't get through a very, very narrow door. So it sounds like basically one of the big things we could do long term would be to at least open a new medical school. Look, look, um, that could be a solution. And look, that has been discussed. We know it's been discussed. And it has still been actively talked about. Um, however, there's increased capacity that could be at Otago and Auckland and the increasing medical schools. But again, the constraints to entry are the number of places that are actually funded by the government. That's the actual global situation. So the government actually determines how many students it is prepared to fund through the university programme. And that's what determines how many how many um, of our very able, you're right, students get into medical school and how many go through through the training or the process. So, um, yeah, there are issues there and there are probably solutions there in terms of what could possibly happen, but that needs to happen at a strategic government level and I believe it is something that hasn't been looked at um, closely enough over the last 10, 15 years. And hence we get to the situation where yeah. uh, in, in, in 13 years, half the GPs are going to retire. Good grief. Um, just on a personal note, uh, uh, Brian, so you, you have your practice in Cannons Creek, Porterua. Uh yeah. I mean, how do, you, how, how do you find your practice and uh, your workload? Because the ratio, the, the ratio in Cannons Creek, I think, is about one doctor to 1,300, which is... Uh, a lot higher than normal. Look, look, it's yeah, one to thirteen hundred, one to fifteen hundred, and Cannons wow. Creek is a high needs area um, with a lot of very complex um, social, m- mental health, medical issues. So we've got two two issues that are arise time and time again, and we've seen this across the country. One, we find it very hard to attract doctors and nurses into the area, and those that are there work actually very, very hard. The workload is huge. It's huge. There's a constant demand, a constant demand which is absolutely there. But as a society and as a government and as a system, and this is probably one of the issues around inequity, we haven't adequately funded those practices in high needs areas or rural areas to actually service their population, to have enough GPs, to have enough doctors, to have enough allied health staff to actually adequately serve the demand to produce outcome. And I believe that's actually one of the problems we've got in the system. Dr. Brian Betty. An issue there. Yes, sorry, you want no. to continue? Uh, Anjum, you first, then Steve. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I'll be really quick. Um, one really simple barrier that you could take away right now is making them do a year before they get into medical. Like, it's unnecessary. Didn't used to be the case when I was okay. at school. Twenty or $30,000 down the drain if you don't get in. Very interesting, Steve. I was just going to say, I was talking to um, a mate 
recently who is a GP, I shan't name him, but he was talking about how, the, how, how much more convenient it is simply to import already trained doctors from overseas. It's, it's much more convenient for the government to get to farm out the training to the rest of the world and then fetch over ready trained doctors. But the problem is most immigrants want to live in Auckland until we start training our own doctors at home. We're not going to get people in the regions, which it sounds like is where we need them. All right. uh, Brian, a quick response to that. We've got to move on. Yeah, look, I'm just very, very quickly. One of the things I'll say, there is a global shortage of, of, of doctors around the world. It's an international market. And one of the stunning, stunning facts is America alone would sap up every medical graduate from every medical school in the first world for the next 20 years. Just to, 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 to that's the size of the thing. So we are part of actually quite a competitive global market in terms of trained doctors, which is another really interesting fact about the situation, which is why we have to concentrate on graduates within New Zealand. Good on you, Brian. Kia ora. That's uh, Brian Betty there uh, on the uh, quite uh, incredible uh, report there uh, that... Uh, where is it? Where is the stats? It's not there anymore. Yeah, um, half of New Zealand's GPs to retire in the next 13 years. Good grief. Uh, look, big response to this. Uh, do you mend your clothes or not? Uh, I said you don't. Uh, m- big major pushback by all of you. Say, of course you mend your clothes. Uh, and by the way, uh, if, if, you think I, if you think I come across as a, a non-mender, um, uh, 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 there was a device on my bed one day when I was just uh, dating Tabitha uh, and she said, what on earth is that? She thought it was a massage, uh, some sort of massage thing. And I said, well, it's a sock darner. And she said, well, what did you do with it? And I said, to darn my socks. Uh, and I've darned my socks for years. Love it. Um, haven't done it for a few years now, but uh, you know, I, I am a sock darner. But Debbie says, look, I'm in the process of mending my partner Stubby's shorts. I keep him uh, buying his new shorts, but it's very difficult to drag him away from his favourites, hence I'm hence I'm doing this on my late mum's old Bernina. Just for fun, I'm putting the patches on the outside, not trying to conceal them at all. Uh, another one here. Yes, my 13-year-old daughter out of the blue started thrashing our sewing machine, fixing, modifying old clothes, and selling them on an app called Depop. She even sold one of her dad's old jumpers to someone young and trendy. Check out her page, Reworked Threads. Oh, I'll do that. There is hope for this generation yet. So, uh, look around the panel on this uh, this one, Andrew. Do you mend your clothes, or you can't be bothered? It's not that I can't be bothered. I hate sewing. Like I just hate it. So, to be, I have some other ideas besides mending. Um, first of all, <laughs> you know, just so that I can be contributing positively to this, make the clothes more durable to start with. You know, I buy men's clothes for a lot of things, like pajamas, t-shirts, socks, because the ones they make for women are so flimsy. They're terrible. So make the clothing durable. Secondly, let's do away with fashion to the extent that you you should be able to wear something for 10 years and not be laughed out of the room. Who cares if it's not fashionable? We're using our clothes longer term. Well, that you're on Steve's total wavelength there as the most anti-fashion uh, uh, panelist we we have. Can I just come back to that? Um, that, that that's that, harsh. Well, it is. It's, well, it's true. Uh, if you could see what I'm wearing right, at, right now, Wallace, seriously, what, this, what this, are you this, wearing, this Steve? Really fetching. What are you wearing? Excuse me. Well, that's a very personal question. Um, black black tie tuxedo. Obviously, we have standards. <laughs> 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 aren't, aren't, you mean you're not? 
Send Good me a picture. Lord, what's, uh, what's send me a picture of radio station you. coming to? Uh, You're on. Um, anyway, I just want to come back to that. Uh, that's that's an extraordinary thing you said that you often buy men's clothes because of durability. It's, this has got to be another panel topic because uh, I, I hope uh, Tabitha doesn't mind me saying this, but she is just sick and tired of some of women's clothes, particularly pajamas, because she goes through them at a rate of knots. I'm serious. I had my PJs for 10 years. Tab has gone through three pairs of PJs in like two years. They are just thin and just not well made. And the elastic is pathetic. We look at the elastic on men's pyjamas. Why don't we deserve decent, durable clothes as women? We do. It's a disgrace. Steve, do you mean things? I have been known to. I can certainly sew on a, a button when needed. So I have been known to, to stitch a pair of trousers occasionally. But I, what I do tend to do is there's a really good um, tailoring service here in town. And I often take stuff to them to get fixed. I mean, it's, it's wasteful not to. My student sons mended their jeans pockets with duct tape, <laughs> went through the wash successfully many times. Uh, you're on the panel, uh, NZ National.